the gap between science and environmental activism and economics and markets is enormous. Gabriel Eikhoff knows that gap well. A biologist by training and an ecologist by inclination, he stumbled into the world of finance while studying public policy here in Chicago. There are some ways a broken family, but there's a missing realization that the two of them are integrately involved with one another when it comes to land use change because it's our markets which drive land use change and it's the science and conservation initiatives that are looking to keep those landscapes there. And they, in many ways, think that they are running cross-purpose, that there's a war going on between conservation and land use. And the reality is that they're just not talking to each other. He spent the last 16 years trying to get the worlds of science, finance, climate, and conservation talking to each other. And I'd argue succeeding. There's a reason he wants them talking to each other, and that's because... If they did, then there's incredible solutions and innovation that can happen. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet? Or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And it's a question today's guest, Gabriel Eikhoff, has been grappling with for almost 20 years. First as a young ecologist longing for the forests of Borneo, then as a student of environmental policy, followed by a gig at the Rwandan Ministry of Environment in Kigali, and finally through a series of companies focused on environmental finance, culminating with Lestari Capital, which he co-founded and now helps run. Gabriel and I have each been working full-time on the climate challenge for 16 years, many of them pretty lean ones. I didn't meet him until 2017, when I was researching the impact of corporate sustainability pledges on deforestation. Our findings from then are relevant to the net-zero pledges that we're seeing all over the place today. I've alluded to these findings before, most deeply in episode 22 of Bionic Planet, way back in 2018. We found that some of the companies that had pledged to remove deforestation from their supply chains actually took those pledges seriously, but most did not. The net result was, on the surface, kind of disappointing. We found that these pledges had no impact on deforestation at the global level because bad companies simply stepped in to chop forests where the good ones had stopped. 
But there were some seriously optimistic and actionable findings as well. To begin with, there was a clear distinction between leaders, followers, and laggards. And opaque supply chains had become much more transparent, making it easier to identify the bad guys. Unfortunately, this transparency is sometimes a double-edged sword that has a way of slicing the good companies that actually report their impacts. That will have to be a topic for another show, but if you want to find the report, it's available on the internet. It's called Impacts of Supply Chain Commitments on the Forest Frontier. Gabriel, at the time, was in the process of launching something called the Sustainable Commodities Conservation Mechanism, which we'll touch on today. It's a way of making sure that palm oil companies that pledge to restore forests actually do what they say they're doing, in part by using methodologies that were developed in carbon markets, which, contrary to what some people like to claim, are still a lot more powerful and effective, in my opinion, than philanthropy ever was. We'll touch on that in today's show. Gabriel's company is called Lestari Capital, and Lestari is Indonesian for eternal or sustainable. The company's focus is on creating ways of internalizing negative externalities and encouraging positive externalities. If you're a regular listener, you know that externalities are what this show is all about. They're the impacts that companies have on the world outside their supply chains. And externalities can be positive, as when honeybees pollinate surrounding crops, or negative, as when companies dump their pollution in a river. Gabriel's one of these guys who just makes my brain buzz when we talk, but I've never had him on the show until now. We'd intended to talk about new technologies being used to restore nature, but we ended up going in a half dozen other directions, so that we'll have to wait for another show as well, and I'm sure you'll want him back. We started out kind of dryly, but then we segued pretty quickly into a more philosophical discussion on the interplay between economy and ecology, the role of philanthropy versus the role of environmental markets, and the interconnectedness of all things. We started out by discussing the legacy of the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets, which I covered in detail in episode 64. The task force brought together all sorts of people, from economists and ecologists to bankers and farmers, in an effort to forge global agreement on core carbon principles, or what constitutes a legitimate offset and what does not. Some of the discussions were a bit contentious, and that's where we pick up this conversation. In the earlier meetings, there was a lot of tension. You had all these people coming in from the world of finance, a lot of them who'd never given climate a second glance, and they were coming in telling us what we needed to do to make these markets work. And then you had people who'd been in forever saying, oh, we're reinventing the wheel. And uh, it seems like the final agreement essentially is just formalizing agreement on what we mean by quality, and they essentially locked in on what the standards were already doing. So they really didn't overhaul anything. It felt like we were going back to square one, but then we ended up on a new square. And it's sort of like instead of reinventing the wheel – there was this, oh, okay, maybe these old wheels are are okay. We just need to define them. Is that kind of the way you perceived it too? That's yeah, you know, I mean, so that I think the core carbon principles concept is really quite important, but they really came out with kind of five highlighted points and mm -hmm. in, in addition to the CCPs. 
And those were that there needs to be consensus, what? There needs to be consensus around net zero corporate claims. We need to highlight and define good practice. We need to find a way to get the market to send clear demand signals to improve market infrastructure and to create regulatory clarity. And mm -hmm. if the CCPs are able to sit at the center of that, fantastic. But I think redefining 15, 20 years of work that's already gone into the voluntary carbon market in terms of standards around quality, it doesn't move the needle forward in, enough. They have to capture what's out there already and, and then consolidate and bring it together. The, the concern of reinventing the wheel has been something that comes up time and time again. But I think that's ultimately a good thing because it means that we're constantly questioning what we've done so far and yeah. whether or not there's a way to mm. improve it. No, mm -hmm. no issue with that. Right, right. But now everyone's on the same page. Yeah, pretty especially much. on all, especially on their five points of what it would really take to get natural climate solutions markets really functioning like normal markets, right? Out of a niche thing and into mainstream. Um, if you don't hit all five of those things, even if you define the most perfect definition of what is good supply, if there isn't appropriate infrastructure, there isn't an appropriate regu regulating environment or clear demand signals, all of that falls, falls to the side as basically an intellectual exercise. Is there any, any specific element of the five points that you wanted to start with that, that you felt are the most impactful? I think that there are three, actually, that are the most impactful. I think we've done a lot on standards. We've done a lot on what it means to, to define quality. And defining quality like any other product is a never-ending thing that will continue mm -hmm. to evolve, that will continue to refine and refine. And we shouldn't be overly concerned about that because there's an abundance of people, both in civil society and scientific organizations and in regulatory positions that are looking at that. The most interesting thing out of the five are really three things. The demand side signals in the regulatory environment and the supply side. So the supply side, not in terms of what is good quality, but the supply side in terms of how do we replicate and replicate and replicate and replicate? How do we, how do you truly make a, a supply side market and not just anecdotal one-off success stories, right? So how do you replicate success in natural climate solutions on the supply side? I picked those three specifically because we have really strong demand signals that are driven ultimately at UNFCCC levels, but then are trickled down into the economy through NDCs, through different ways in which countries begin to regulate themselves and then regulate the corporates inside of them. That demand side is there. And so you couple that with the supply side and replicating success and replicating ways in which projects are achieving additional benefits uh, to the climate, but also delivering value to communities and delivering value to biodiversity. Then, in the center of that, is a lot of chaos. And in the center of this, in the center of that, is the regulatory environment, because every country is looking at doing things a little bit differently. And there isn't one single kind of regulatory framework globally for the market. So, if those three pieces all come together, then you have the makings for a market. And then after that. It's just a question of scaling it up, which is where the, the market infrastructure and some of the evolution around exchanges are starting to um, crop up and starting to appear. And that's a really exciting piece. It's it's hard to talk about any one piece of this because they're all, yeah, yeah. They all begin to interconnect. Yeah, it's frustrating, you know, when you've got like a big complicated 
puzzle, you move one little element and all of a sudden everything shifts like a Rubik's cube or something, but even worse. The, and the one yeah. thing you, yeah, the it's, economy. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's unpack this because he threw out some lingo there and he'll throw out some more before we're done. He divides the world of natural climate solutions into three components. The supply side on the one end or the end that's creating the apples, the oranges, palm oil and the carbon credits and the demand side on the other side or the end that's eating the apples, squeezing the oranges, boiling or frying with the palm oil and buying the carbon credits or as we'll see, other environmental credits. In the middle is regulation, and that's going to be a hot topic at year-end climate talks in Glasgow. These talks are the Conference of the Parties, or the COP, to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC. Now, the demand side doesn't just include the private sector, it's not just stores and you and me, but it includes governments as revealed in each country's nationally determined contribution to the Paris Agreement, or NDC. I usually tell you don't worry too much about acronyms, but today you might want to try to keep these in short-term memory because they'll come up a few more times. The Urine Climate Talks, again, are the COP. The Nationally Determined Contributions are NDCs. And we'll also be talking about Corsia, which is the carbon market that was set up by ICAO, which is the global regime for regulating international passenger flights. I covered Corsia way back in October of 2016 on episode 8 of Bionic Planet, five years ago, when major media were still ignoring the climate challenge. Now, I started Bionic Planet on my own time and my own dime, and I rely on listeners like you to keep it going. The one complaint that I've gotten the most is that I don't generate enough episodes, and that's something you can help me change. If you think I'm doing a good job of translating these technical issues into plain English and putting them into context for you, and you want more and better episodes, then help me give them to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support the show for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. This way, if I don't manage to generate an episode in a month, you don't get charged. And if I manage to crank out a ton of episodes, you don't get whacked either. The web address again is not the Bionic Planet website, but the Patreon website, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Bionic Planet. I am devoted to Bionic Planet, and I even quit my full-time job to ramp up both the output and the production value. But I need your help to do it. If you're a business that wants to sponsor the show or a philanthropist who wants to make a larger donation, I'm now fiscally sponsored through Manga Bay as a nonprofit, which means you can make a tax-deductible donation, which can help me generate a lot of episodes and even contract a sound designer and other contributors, as well as putting in more of my own time. For that, you can email me at steve at bionic-planet.com. That's steve at bionic-planet.com, and I'll repeat that at the end of the show. You can also help others find the show by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, 
the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Looking back to Gabriel, remember we were discussing ways of replicating success on the supply side of environmental markets. I asked him to share his thoughts on the most important lessons of his career so far. So I think what we've learned in the last 15, 16 years is really strong stories about what not to do. And we've learned that you can't just come in to a remote forest location and put up a fence and say, this is mine. I, th I think what we've learned is that every successful project in natural climate solutions has always started around asking the question, what works best and how do you incentivize and create value for the local communities that are there, that are actually mm -hmm. living there, that are stakeholders in the project. And instead of looking at them as participants or beneficiaries, I think that whole concept of treating local communities um, as beneficiaries took us really in the wrong direction. Not that they shouldn't benefit, but, but that they need to be stakeholders in the project and actively interested in and yeah. participating in the project. So every successful project is, is starts there. And then from there, you build out questions on biodiversity, you build out the necessary questions on the climate impact of the project. And that's not to say that every project that you start where you focus on a community ends up becoming viable. There really is a delicate balance, just like there would be. But every project that I've seen has taken both a business and a development approach to these projects and walked that tightrope really carefully and respectfully. I think what will ultimately drive replication of success is beginning to identify the jurisdictions, meaning the national jurisdictions and the subnational jurisdictions where these types of projects are welcome and they are integrated into the country's climate strategy so that there's a friendly regulatory environment in place and that the, the leading project developers and the environmental entrepreneurs who are developing these projects continue to professionalize and are no longer acting as startups, no longer acting as young companies on a new frontier, but actually beginning to standardize and replicate their methods and, and the procedures that they follow for evaluating and implementing and operating the projects. And I think technology is going to play a big role in that in the future. A lot of the work that we were doing early on was just so incredibly labor-intensive and hands-on. So as, as satellite and remote sensing work begins to be more pervasive and be more accessible and become more standardized, that takes a heavy burden both off of the developer, but it also takes out a lot of variance in the way one developer would assess a project versus the way another developer would assess a project. You know, we can loop back to the technology issue later if we have time, but I'm wondering if right now we could take a moment just to go back and recap your own trajectory, where you come from, how you got here. I know you went to the University of Chicago, then you were in Indonesia when we first started talking. Now you're in Singapore. And I know from talking to you over the years that you've dealt with a lot of the puzzles that are just now really coming into the mainstream. So just tell me, you know, who you are, how you get started, and how you ended up here. Yeah, sure. Um, the short answer of how I got into the carbon markets and into carbon forestry is it was a complete accident. 
Mm -hmm. I still consider myself a biologist by training. I did my undergrad at the University of Michigan, studied zoology at the uh, University of Melbourne for a short stint and was on a PhD path and through one fluke or another ended up at the University of Chicago studying economic policy at the Harris School of Public Policy. And at the University of Chicago really was introduced to the first time to this concept of externalities and mm -hmm. market corrections and uh, regulatory policy and environmental law. And mixing all of that with a scientific background was really quite um, painful in the beginning, to be honest. But then at, at some point, the light switched for me there. And I ended up some years later in, in Geneva looking for doing just job hunting after graduate school. And a husband and wife team approached me and said, hey, we're working on a way of, of financing forest conservation through climate change finance. And, and I said, great, sure, let's uh -huh. do it. And uh, a year later, I was in Indonesia and working on, and this would have been 2006, working on one of the first Red Plus projects in the, in, in, in the world at that time. And this was pre-VCS. This was yeah. early stage stuff. But from there, I was working in remote parts of Malinao in, in, at that time, East Kalimantan, working in villages that were three days, four days travel by riverboat for months at a time. And it really struck me that there is this incredible gap between what's happening on the ground in the real world and what these communities are dealing with. Um, the economic forces driving land use change all around them, their need to sustain themselves and to prosper, and the conversations that were happening in the COP. And yeah, yeah. it was not even two different universes, two different multiverses colliding. And what was originally an idea to to join this team and start working on this became a passion for me because mm -hmm. all of my work and research prior on on forest inventories and on field biology were colliding together with issues of externalities and, and market change. And then I was hooked. And that was 16, that was 16 years ago. You said uh, that when you went from biology into economics, the whole issue of externalities was painful. You even well, winced look, when you said that. Can you, yeah, what do you mean look, by that? What, yeah. Look, anybody who at, in their 20s dedicates themselves to a David Attenborough style life mm -hmm. and then sits down in Hyde Park studying microeconomics, it's a clash of cultures. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a necessary clash of cultures because I think there's yeah. such, there's, in the same way that there's this divide between communities and what's happening on the real world on the ground and conversations that are happening in COP, the gap back then, and still to some extent today, between science and environmental activism and economics and markets is enormous, right? Mm -hmm. They are yeah. in some ways, there are some ways broke, a broken family, but there's a missing realization that the two of them are integrally involved with one another when it comes to land use change because it's our markets which drive land use change. And it's the science and conservation initiatives that are looking to keep those landscapes there. And they, in many ways, think that they are running cross purpose, that there's a war going on between conservation and land use. And the reality is that they're just not talking to each other. 
And yeah. if, if they did, then there's incredible solutions and innovation that can happen. Who was the husband and wife team? Can you, can you mention that or did they not want? Yeah. So the, the, the husband and wife team was a woman by the name of Marina Ambiricos. And she had started up the Borneo Tropical Rainforest Foundation and her husband, John Ambiricos, who, were, who had started up one of the early stage project investment and kind of demand side focused companies called Global Eco Rescue. We worked on a very large collaboration with the Department of Forestry back then in East Kalimantan in 2006-2007. We did then uh, a big expose at the Bali COP called the Green Renaissance. And and some years later, they expanded their scope into Aceh and into the Loiser ecosystem in, in Aceh. But this was 2008-2009 we were all so far ahead of where the rest of the community mm -hmm. was both both the policy community the market community and and even to a large extent where we were at in terms of being able to accurately calculate carbon emissions back then the projects were never successful in themselves but the types of people that it began to inspire to go out and continue to do work on this the, these types of things continues on what where, what were the gaps so, that you were looking at and going yeah so shortly after that so shortly after that in 2010 i 2009 or so i joined up with a couple of other colleagues scott stanley jeff chatelier and we gave life to a new company called forest carbon and what we realized mm -hmm. was there was no shortage back then. This would have been kind of 2008 would have been considered maybe the first arc of interest in the voluntary carbon markets, I think. And there was mm -hmm. no shortage in, in, the, in, in people wanting to invest. And there was no shortage of people in areas of land to protect and to restore. But there was a big technical gap at that point because the VCS was only one year old at that point. And that, so there was a lot of work to do. So we started a, a team that was specialized in Indonesia, in Malaysian forests, and that later evolved into a team being based in, in the Mekong region, in Vientian, Laos. And so we grew the company to be able to serve and provide services across the Mekong and across into Indonesia, Malaysia. But the thing that we were, as forest carbon grew, it grew into kind of a cold winter of the carbon market. Yeah. It was after the financial crisis, the market slowed down quite a lot, but the interest in the underlying philosophy of, of the work for most people never stopped mm -hmm. because it was such a compelling idea. And we began to ask ourselves, are there ways to take the principles behind the carbon transaction and apply them in the exact same way. If we can quantify an impact in terms of carbon and integrate that into the market in a way in which it addresses an externality with a positive externality, can't we do the exact same thing around other types of claims in our project areas? We began to ask ourselves really stimulating questions around are there ways to capture claims around social impact? Are there ways to capture claims around biodiversity impacts? And a lot of people had been asking and theorizing on this. Tom Clements at the Wildlife Conservation Society was talking about stacking of ecosystem services. A lot of work was going into this, but it was being done on a theoretical level. If you look at all the activities that are happening on a single hectare of land in the middle of Borneo, 
as a result of a conservation initiative, is it not possible to parse out not just the climate claims associated with that, but all the other kind of co-benefits that go along with that type of a carbon or climate mm-hmm. project, and then begin to break each of those pieces down and then find different market demands for each one of those individual pieces. And so we at Forest Carbon started looking at new types of demand for this work and began looking outside of traditional carbon market buyers. Around that time, the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, around 2016 or so, the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil created a new retroactive policy requiring compensation for deforestation inside of uh, palm oil concessions as part of certification. And this was immediately interesting because it meant you have to address this externality, this historical externality of production. There's been a loss of high conservation or high carbon stock forest areas that now needs to be compensated for. And you have to do so financially. And that finance has to go into long-term conservation activities on the ground. And what's interesting about that is that it's not an ESG thing. It's not a philanthropic thing. It's not even a voluntary thing. It's if you want to maintain your certification and your downstream supply chain of who is buying your palm oil, this must be done. So why must this be done? For a full answer, you can check out that report I mentioned at the start, Impacts of Supply Chain Commitments on the Forest Frontier. It will tell you about the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, or RSPO, which some producers and NGOs created in the early 2000s as a certification program for palm oil, which you'll find in everything from toothpaste to tacos. It's one of the crops most closely associated with deforestation worldwide, Companies that want RSPO certification have to meet certain criteria. An RSPO company can lose its customers if it cheats on its RSPO commitments, as a Chinese company called Noble Group learned in 2017, and which I covered in 2018, episode 29. One of these criteria is to have zero impact on forests that are deemed to have high carbon stocks and high conservation value, so-called HSC and HCV forests. The requirement was implemented in 2014, and it also required companies to compensate for any impacts they may have already had going back to 2005 by financing protection and restoration of forests. That policy paved the way for a new one that came later. It was a new policy introduced in 2016. So it, so I think the roundtable got started and they said, as part of this certification practice, you must conduct a high conservation value forest assessment. And that created a whole burgeoning market of research around what is a high conservation value forest? What counts? Sacred areas count. Biodiversity levels matter. And everything except for carbon at that point was included. and. In 2016, they realized that, hey, we think a lot of that high conservation value forest is still getting lost. So they have to come in, Mm -hmm. they have to conduct this assessment to say what can be converted for agriculture, for palm oil plantations, and what cannot be. And by 2016, they were realizing that a lot of the areas or some of the areas were still getting converted. 
either accidentally or otherwise. And <clears throat> there was demand to, for action to be taken about that. Uh, and in order for the RSPO, the roundtable, to maintain credibility that it was actually living up to its purpose. And so in 2016, they retroactively put in place a policy around compensation. And that created a miniature demand market of companies that want to maintain a very valuable certification standard. And in order to do that, that compensation needed to be paid. <clears throat> and, and here we were saying, hey, there's all these incredible conservation projects all over the place. We've been working with them as Forest Carbon, and many of them are our friends and members of the conservation community. Why don't we try to introduce some of these projects to some of these companies? The big challenge was that the companies were required to pay for 25 years. And 25 years is an important number because you can't do conservation. And this is what's important about the entire ecosystem services market philosophy is the way in which we do conservation historically for the last 100, 150 years or so, however long, has really been about three-year grant cycles or some donor assistance. Mm -hmm. But you can't manage Borneo. You can't manage large-scale landscapes that are dynamic with, with human interactions and, and fires and competing land economic drivers. You can't manage... You, philanthropic finance can never compete with a market on land use. Yeah. And, and so here was then the roundtable saying financing has to flow to compensate and it has to flow for at least 25 years. And so we connected these two up and said, what if we created a platform that allowed the, the companies to come to the table, choose from a portfolio of, of, of incredible projects from across Southeast Asia and choose the one that's a good fit for them and engage with them. And we will handle the performance payments that are being made to the project every year. And the project then <clears throat> produces annual outcomes that are conservation KPI driven. And the rights over the claims on those are handed to the company for their compliance needs. And all of a sudden, you have a miniature market that, that isn't driven by carbon per se, but it's still a market of demand and supply that runs parallel to the carbon finance, if necessary. Yeah, and it's interesting too, at least to, as I understand it, because at this point, the RSPO, they didn't really have rigorous criteria on any of this. So you were saying, okay, we've got these carbon markets, these carbon projects that were developed using standards that are pretty rigorous, third-party verified and all that kind of stuff. And then you've got this fairly loose, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my perception of the RSPO stuff was it was pretty loose. It was just like, you had to spend a certain amount of money per hectare or something, wasn't it? I forget what they what the criteria were, but you were but but what you were doing was saying twenty five years is that's great. We mm -hmm. need to bring more rigor in, and we can do it by by utilizing all these carbon projects. Is that am I yeah. understanding that correctly? Yeah. Or my the the RSPO set out broad principles on how compensation mm -hmm. needed to take place, and it needed to be projects that were additional, meaning they wouldn't have otherwise happened. That they're long lives long-lived, so they are 25 years, that they are creating benefits for those on the ground and that they're equitable benefits amongst amongst other criteria. And so here we were coming from the carbon world where we're having double audited methodologies, double peer-reviewed methodologies, 
audited reports, all of that detail going into it, levels of statistical significance, levels of confidence intervals and the biomass that's being measured. And so it was surgical versus hand-wavy. And I'm yeah, sa- yeah. not saying that the hand-wavy was insufficient. The hand-wavy principles the RSPO laid out were all excellent. It's just that we were able to overlay on top of that right. more precision. And that's where we said, look, there are these projects that are verified under the carbon market, <clears throat> and some of them also under the VARA standards, under the VCS, and they also have CCB certification. And that CCB certification, I think, is an incredible underdog in this whole story because yeah, yeah. That's, that, that CCB certification, that climate community and biodiversity certification that's all the rich impact that you don't get from any other carbon project in the world other than from land use and forestry. And we took those projects and, and even new standards that are emerging like SD Vista, and you can bring that to the table and you can reverse engineer the way a carbon transaction is done, but apply it to findings from the CCB reports. And that gives suddenly meaning to the buyer because they now mm-hmm. understand what it is that they're what it is that they're transacting. They see that there's an auditor there, that there's a framework there. It's not just a broad conservation agenda and log frame. And that also gave meaning to the supply side because they said, ah, now I understand why this is valuable. And yeah. this makes the investment in getting that certification useful. And so we brought that forward. And that was the inception of what became known as the Sustainable Commodities Conservation Mechanism that had Cargill and a number of other companies become the first users of it for for us. And I think that the beauty of where all of this leads to is, can you take that principle of multiple different types of ecosystem services and apply it to not just individual company claims, but across an entire supply chain? right? Mm. Is there value that could be brought not just at the grower level where the deforestation is happening, but look at it from a market standpoint and say, well, actually that grower is growing there because there's a refiner and a processor and a trader that Mm -hmm. downstream from them. And they're processing and refining and trading because there's a consumer goods manufacturer from them. And that consumer goods manufacturer is making that because there's a, there's 7-Eleven that's distributing it. And there's 7-Eleven that's distributing because you and I want to buy the products that are there. And so when you look at it in that framework, it's unfair to point a finger at any grower. Yeah. It's, it's actually the entire supply chain in, right down to you and I, which are actually right. responsible for the impacts that we're all having. And two years later, we created a second mechanism uh, that we launched this year uh, called, the, called the RIMBA Collective. And alongside Pepsi, Procter & Gamble, Nestle and Wilmar as the mm-hmm. founding partners. Wilmar is and, probably not a household yeah. name to a lot of my listeners. Wilmar is a big yeah. palm oil company. Yeah. Wilmar is the, yeah, is exactly the, the largest refiner and processor of palm oil. Yeah. And so it's, so there becomes this entire ecosystem of ways of interacting with land use projects, local communities and biodiversity in our markets and by beginning to combine evolving trends with what the market needs in order to yeah. meet their own needs, which are ultimately echoing and reflecting what consumers are asking for. And in this case, the conservation project side and beginning to be able to package up these claims project by project. It's just 
that on the supply side, it's not like making widgets. The challenge of this, that's the challenge of the entire land use based climate mitigation, carbon storage side of the climate debate is that if you treat forest areas and communities like as though they were lemonade stands producing a product, it's immediately unsuccessful. Each one has to be very carefully engaged with, very respectfully designed, but we have to be able to do that on scale globally. And they have to be able to fit within national frameworks and national strategies on climate change at the same time. So it's all very integrated and and it's not a surprise that this market deals with a lot of challenges on a year by year and a, on a month by month basis because it is tricky. Yeah, you've really articulated the complexity because you've got the supply chain, the demand side and then you, and then but then to meet the demand you have to do something on the ground that creates product that is ecologically sound. And to get that done on the ground, you need some kind of finance. We keep hearing people say things like, oh, Red Plus can't work because it doesn't address the demand issue. And then people say, oh, the supply chain stuff, it's too big. It can never be done, but it, it can. And it's done interactively. These are not evolving separately. It's interesting that the methodologies that were used to develop the Red Projects ends up informing, bringing some transparency and uh, quantifiability to the uh, the demand side, to the supply chain people who want to actually do it right, which then makes this whole network thing come alive. Just the way it gels together is, it's so hard exactly. to explain. It's hard to understand, then to explain it. Just when I think I understand it, I don't. That's my problem too. It's, <laughs> I think I get it, that big giant interactive puzzle, it all starts I, falling apart. I think what also makes it complex, and it's important for your listeners to understand, is that there is no one way, yeah. right, there, that yeah. the market currently engages with conservation. There's the old way, right, donor finance, philanthropic support, which is the bedrock and the foundation of the conservation movement, really, throughout history. And what we're experiencing now is really an evolution of that in saying that's that was a necessary starting spot but is now insufficient for market demand for land in a growing global population and unless we move beyond that and i don't mean abandon philanthropic but we have to build on right. top of philanthropic and the markets need to complement what has been done in a way that is credible and in a way that is um, accountable whether that is through carbon whether that's through payments for impacts on biodiversity or impacts on social impacts. Each of those should be seen as a service that's being provided to the global commons for the global yeah. good. And mm -hmm. it's and just like any other market correction, unless we take each one of those and thread them into our markets so that they're being costed by our cost of goods and, and our cost of services, and then when consumers buy a product, that price for correction of a market impact yeah. is being filtered back down in. We will always be playing catch up in the conservation sector. And, yeah, and again, yeah. this isn't a this or that. It's you need all of it. So yeah, it's a, we need to put the I always like to say we're, we need to put the cost of degradation into the cost of production. Correct. Um, yeah. It's a simple and, way just to keep. Yeah. Yeah cost of degradation, the cost of loss, and the cost of restoration all have to be factored yeah. in because those are all externalities, right? Those are all negative externalities yeah. of what it takes to have a pizza delivered to your house. 
uh, at night. Yeah. And that's not just land use. Delivering a pizza to your house also involves energy. It involves the oven, the energy to heat the oven that heated the pizza and the, the fossil fuels that have gone into or the electric that's gone into the car that delivered it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think coming back to the task force, the task force and the work surrounding the task force is the opportunity for us to step back and say, wow, okay, that this isn't just one way of doing things. If the core carbon principles can create a consensus around trust in what is it that the market is trading in terms of carbon, mm-hmm. then, because right now with, with all the different standards that are out there, there are two pre- predominantly, right? Vera and the gold standard, and, and, and there are many others, but <clears throat> that creates market fragmentation on the supply side. So the core carbon principles can bring that together or rest on the market leaders on the supply side of standardization, the market then knows what it is it's transacting. And once mm-hmm. it knows what it's transacting, it can, on the supply side, tighten the bolts of quality. And on the demand side, refine what the ask is and mm-hmm. what is required mm-hmm. of the market demand and what the market can ask for and what it can't ask for. And it can begin to define and innovate new and more efficient ways of transacting. So if there's a coalescence around what it is that we're transacting, then from that kind of point of compression, we can begin to actually service all of these different sub-segments of demand downstream right? The SBTIs, the Science-Based Targets Initiative, has has done a great job at beginning to lay out what corporate compliance, what corporate commitments mean and how they need to be defined. The civil civil aviation uh, organization and and Corsia's uh, work has has done a great job of moving moving things forward there and beginning to find that. I I anticipate that you begin to see the same thing, the International Maritime Organization and, and a lot of other market segments. And some of those market, some of those market segments will I think follow SPTIs. Others will chart their own course, and, and because it's the market writ large is far too complex to just to to fit under one umbrella. And there's all these just a, another because I haven't covered um, the SPTI as well as I I should have. So I think we might want to just reiterate the Science Based Targets Initiative is a group of organizations and NGOs that are trying to create guidance for what constitutes an emission reduction, what constitutes hard to abate. They're pretty much the driver behind the net zero initiative. And the whole net zero is by 2050, we we have to be at net zero, meaning that we've eliminated all of the emissions we can eliminate, and we're using removal-based offsets to suck out of the air what we can't eliminate. There's all these competing schools of thought that, we t- that you touched on, and SBTI is not so big on reduction-based offsets. They're focused on removals. And, and what, what can and cannot be claimed as part of the Science-Based Targets Initiative is a really big area of debate. I should probably do a show just on SBTI because I keep alluding to it piecemeal. But uh, mm-hmm. so you got the SBTI out there, and then you've got the concept of net zero, which is where you can be now through offsetting, yeah. either through reductions or removals. And so there's exactly. there's all these different Currents and trains of... And there was a report that came out from Trove Research and I think the University College London and a few others. And they did a beautiful job of both looking at the market ahead 
but also of summarizing it now. And they had very simple tables. The first time I've ever seen it broken down like this. When we talk about market demand, right, the way that presents itself to society and to consumers is, ends up being through the lens of a marketing, a marketing terminology. And so effectively, you have three different categories. You have carbon neutrality, carbon neutral. You have mm. beyond carbon neutral. Mm. And you have net zero science-based targets, right? Carbon neutral right. is basically just voluntary companies voluntarily offsetting that may achieve some of or all of their um, carbon emissions or equivalent carbon emissions. Beyond carbon mm -hmm. neutral is basically the same thing, but going beyond their actual carbon footprint. These are the two that are have historically been most well known. And then at zero and SPTIs have really looked at it and said, that's just not enough. What we really, because yeah. because where are we going? It's great that you're doing that, but where are we going here? If we want to hit a 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius target, that has to be done by nation states and governments to, to regulate against their NDCs. But even then, where do corporates and where does the market play in that? And how do they begin to set targets that are aligning their company's impacts from Scope one, direct emissions, scope two, indirect, and three, downstream impacts. What deductions do they need to make, to make and where in order to basically align their company with, with a 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius warming? And there are dozens and dozens of different terms for all of these three, for yeah. what are effectively three <laughs> different categories. But the net zero is really you know, the next frontier of this. And I think there will maybe one day eventually be a beyond net zero. But the, the next frontier of all this work is you need to abate everything you possibly can and you need to no. report on that and you need to be able to demonstrate why you can't abate what you can't abate and if that is credible then there are ways in which that can be offset right mm -hmm. if it's truly unavoidable then then that has to be offset and sbti's has done a great job of breaking down uh market demand segment or market segment by market segment, how that needs to happen and where those targets need to be. Because the thing that people often miss is that the economy is not just one big thing. Mm -hmm. Each different part of it, different parts of our transition to a low carbon future, to a net zero future, <clears throat> different parts of the market are more sticky than other parts. Some parts of the market are easier to abate and others are harder. Yeah. And so each different market segment, whether it's transportation or it's commodities or it's steel or it's energy, has its own individual curve that is necessary for transition. And you can say, no, we have to stop everything now, but that can cause catastrophic impacts to our economy and far more social and environmental suffering yeah. than we anticipate if you force it. But if you use carbon offsets as a way of just maintaining the status quo to to lengthen your curve to transition, you're all flying in the face of everything that we, that we need to achieve as a society and getting to 1.5 to 2 degrees. And so, there ha so they've done a great job of setting out where those curves need to be, what needs to be abated straight away, you know, and what can't be. And it's still work in progress. I mean, I think mm -hmm. it will continue to be, but I believe strongly that's the future. And the companies that are saying, we're going to abate, but we're also going to offset 
in the meantime, right, voluntarily, those are the companies that are tuned in to the the real issues at hand and are going to be the market leaders in this space going forward. Yeah, the companies that voluntarily offset tend to also have the most aggressive strategies for real reduction. There, yeah. People have this perception that, that no, they're, they're buying their way out of it. No, it's the opposite. They tend to be the best at both. It's uh, well, something we've found. A, yeah. a, a beautiful, a tragic, but very, very good example of what happens, of what can happen if you transition too quickly or prematurely is what's happening right now in the global energy market. Look anywhere on Bloomberg today or, or anywhere else, and you'll see that there's a global energy shortage. And, and, and really what it is, two different paradigms. You have the old economy around fossil fuels, and you have the new economy around renewables. But attached to renewables is not just energy creation, it's energy storage, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, yeah. if you put up 500 million windmills, but you only have the capacity to store energy from a million windmills, right? Doesn't, you're you're yeah. not there. You're not there yet. And so what we've what we're actually experiencing right now is an asymmetry between a divestment from the old economy and an overinvestment. I wouldn't say it's an overinvestment in the in in renewable energy creation, but we've seen it. But it's an underinvestment in storage. And so right. we've created new energy sources to supplant divestments in the old energy creation, but we haven't scaled up storage capacity yet. And so, so you have divestment, new energy creation, but no storage. And then all of a sudden you have a shortage of supply. Yeah. But the argument yeah. for hydrogen as an energy store. Yeah. Correct. And the same thing can happen across the marketplace and in, in across the global economy related to carbon and decarbonization. If you force something too quickly before you're able to transition successfully and smoothly, it can really disrupt the economy and is a necessary interim role for, for carbon to play. And especially carbon from forest and land use, which has, which has an incredible uh, role to play in terms of not just greenhouse gas emissions, but also biodiversity and social impacts and, and all the other co-benefits that go along uh, with those types of projects. So it's... Yeah, the transition is really not about this or that. It's we have to throw everything right. we have at this. And this kind of this kind of this is what I always love when I talk to you. It's always I always feel like I'm watching public television. <laughs> it's just a this free associate. But it, but we that brings us to a couple of the issues we touched on the other day that I wanted to get into here, which is related to the, the voluntary carbon markets and the task force. And there's really two different things. One is the other day you you were saying that the, the creation of core carbon principles might not lead to one single carbon market, but would lead to more niche markets based on types of demand that exist. And the other thing you had talked about was the tokenization of co-benefits. We've been talking about this going back to the genesis of the CCB. Now we've got the Sustainable Development Goals and the ability to create verified biodiversity impacts, verified community impacts, and you know, look, looking at things like how does it impact women's empowerment based on the number of hours a woman works. So there, there are ways of quantifying this stuff. And you had mentioned these two issues and together with a third thing, which was that you'd executed a big trade on exchange because you weren't able to do to pick up the phone and call people like you normally would. They were all sold out. And the issue on that is the way these projects are negotiated, they tend to be negotiated bilaterally based on the unique individual story of each project that, that always plays a big role in this. 
And it was interesting to see how much volume there was on exchange now, and B, how this could pave the way for tokenization of co-benefits, and C, the demand elements could play out differently than we've expected. And I'm wondering if you could riff on all three of those. Sure. Yeah. So the history of any, the history of the genesis of any new market always begins with somebody wanting to buy and somebody wanting to sell. And over time, you get enough people wanting to buy and enough people wanting to sell who don't know each other. That somebody comes in the middle and says, hey, I know a bunch of people over here and I know some projects over there. Let me broker a deal. And, and I'll introduce you, and, but I'm not going to tell you who they are, and I'm not going to tell you who they are, and uh, I'm not going to tell you how much they paid and how much they're paying, I'll, but I'll, you'll get what you want at this price. And after a while, they're, they're, they're not just people on the other side of those deals, but they're organizations, and sometimes they're even governments. And it gets to a scale where the people who were helping to create efficiency between matching person A and person B are actually getting in the way and hindering growth. Yeah. And because there isn't transparency uh, around who person A is and who person B is, and there isn't transparency around the price, and there isn't transparency around how much actual supply there is and how much actual demand there is. And in a nutshell, that's been the history of the carbon markets for the last 15 years. Mm. That's all changing now. We get asked on a regular basis, hey, could you help? We're looking for these types of projects or we're looking for these types of credits. Could you help find them? And we say, sure, it's it's not our normal, it's not our normal day job business, but we're we're happy to help and make those introductions and we don't stand in the way of who the buyer is and who the and who the seller is because we, we don't believe in that approach. Recently we were asked to pull together a, a relatively large size volume of, of credits and basically pull together a portfolio of a different projects that we would that we recommended <clears throat> for a buyer and I reached out to all the projects that we would normally reach out to directly and they were all gone they were all sold and that's a phenomenon that gave me pause because although I knew that by the end of 2020 and the start of 2021 demand for voluntary market carbon emission reductions was starting to pick up and starting to accelerate. I had proof right there in my hands that not only had demand picked up, but we had flipped, we had hit an, our inflection point, which is a dream scenario for the product development world where there was more demand out there than there was supply. And so I said, hey, let's, well, let's check out these exchanges that are now up and operational. And so there, there are a couple of leading exchanges out there. CBL Markets and Expansive have done an incredible job through over the last decade of, of building their platforms. Air Carbon Exchange here in Singapore is, is picking up speed, but there are new ones beginning all over the place. I just saw yesterday that there will be a new one. There will be a new voluntary market exchange in Australia. Singapore has launched its carbon impact exchange, the CIX. There are probably close to a dozen different regional exchanges that are now happening. And all of them have one thing in common, and that's that they are able to create a place where projects or sellers can list transparently ecosystem assets at a price and buyers can come and buy. And mm -hmm. that is in the span of six months, really. We, we hit an inflection point in supply and demand. And all of a sudden, these exchanges cropped up where buyers can go direct to a seller. And that's the type of infrastructure that is going to drive growth. That's the type of infrastructure that's going to create 
scale and enable us to establish reference pricing, enable us to diversify what's being up there and allow us to understand what the prices are for different types of projects. And what's interesting is some are taking a traditional tech approach and others are taking a blockchain approach to that, to those exchanges. And either way, this almost doesn't even matter because what they're ultimately doing is listing an asset, right? It's a claim over a carbon mm -hmm. impact, over a climate impact. Right. And I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever, and there are a number of teams right now, both on the traditional tech and on the blockchain side, the Web 3.0 world, that are already looking towards what about the co-benefits aspects of this. If I can mm -hmm. package up a carbon claim based on a Vera report, why couldn't I also package up other types of claims? And the, whether you call it tokenization or you call it listing of an asset, it's fundamentally a very similar concept. Mm -hmm. On the ground, somewhere in Brazil or somewhere in Kenya or somewhere in Indonesia, there's a project happening. Benefits are being monitored. And when I say benefits, I'm saying impacts, positive impacts on biodiversity, positive impacts on reforestation, positive impacts on social welfare of the participant communities that are working on in, in stakeholders in those projects and the climate impacts are all happening. They're being monitored, they're being reported, they're being audited. <clears throat> the world focuses on the carbon side of that. But for us to simply take that one step further and say, hey, <clears throat> let's write a token for this carbon, but let's also write a token for this social impact or this biodiversity impact and let's list that also on the exchange. And for companies that want to purchase a claim associated with an SDG target or purchase a claim associated with an ESG requirement or purchase a claim for whatever the market innovatively creates or decides for itself that it wants, it's now there and accessible and transparent and can be priced. And we can begin to now track how those prices are changing transparently over time and integrate that into, into the way that the, the, the market works, the way it trades and the way it yeah. transacts, the way it takes positions on futures. And these things which were niche can suddenly now come into the vernacular and piggyback on trading infrastructure that we've had for hundreds of years in, in instruments mm -hmm. and tools that we've had for hundreds. And all of a sudden this stuff becomes immediately accessible to the way that the market works rather than you pick up a phone and you pick up the phone and right. then we write a hundred page emission reduction purchase agreement and there's lawyers involved and then and then there's a trustee involved all of that complexity gets removed by these exchanges and they should be teams like like cbl markets and expansive and air carbon and others need to be commended they've made they they have potentially created Outside of the, the creation of Vera and Gold Standard, these exchanges will make, I think, the single greatest contribution to the growth of this going forward. Not mm. only because <laughs> well, of the efficiency with which they, they transact, but the ability to create consensus around the other types of co-benefits. And that vision from 10, 15 years ago of stacking and being able to create environmental and social derivatives that have a place in the market can be realized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah and, and these won't be, just to clarify, these won't be offsets uh, necessarily. No. They'll be added to an offset. Like you're not offsetting it. You're not enslaving people and then buying something no. that helps people. <laughs> you're, 
extinctions yeah. or yeah. You're doing the opposite. You're creating a service and buyer, a provider and a and a consumer relationship on something that's already happened. And and decoupling that from philanthropic support and actually getting the the financing to flow from the segment of society which is actually creating the negative impacts for which the solution needs to be then integrated in. These exchanges now create the ability for that integration to happen much more rapidly and much more efficiently. But yeah, they the have product, to, yeah. yeah. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say the product like the the geo is a pretty simple thing. I when I I was expecting something more like an index. How are you going to create a core carbon price based on core carbon principles? That it's going to be this is the cost of an emission reduction or the price of an emission reduction and everything else would be a premium or discount to that. But all they've really done is they've taken I think with the geo, it's Corsia compliant offsets and they've said and they've they list them and the most and that's the only thing, the only criteria is are they Corsia compliant? So the market goes to the lowest cost first and then it kind of ticks up until it gets yeah, into the right. more expensive stuff. The question is really is it right? to think about a core carbon price. I mean, what is, the core carbon price suggests that there is a price, right? Is there a price of rice? There's a price today. Yeah, there's always a, there's always like the reference price, then everything else is a discount or premium to that. Exactly, um, exactly. And that's eventually what we're looking at here. And so with the geo, the NGO, there's there there are many different versions now. Mm -hmm. That's what that eventually gets us to down downstream. And those are for your listeners to understand. A, a geo and an NGO is basically a carbon asset which is already pre-designated as, as being acceptable for a certain compliance or market need versus a versus a pure voluntary offset, which may or may not have an actual specific compliance grade to it. And for us to then look ahead and say, is there a reference contracts for other types of environmental benefits, like biodiversity and social impacts and other things like that? That's that that remains to be seen in that, but that's the yeah. that sort of seems to be the road that we're all heading down. And yeah. of course at the project level, every project is a little bit different. The cost of protecting orangutans associated with the project, the cost of protecting mm -hmm. an orangutan group inside of inside of a project depends on the projects and the other actors that are involved in it and et cetera, et cetera. And there will never be one single price. Every project will be a little bit different, a little bit unique here, a little bit more expensive there. Just as any, just as the production of any farm producing corn has a little bit more cost here, a little bit more cost there. But at the end of the day, there's an overall, when we're talking about core carbon price, or core price of anything, or reference contract, that's actually right. That's an average price mm -hmm. of a basket of different variances that are all averaged out together. That gives the market an understanding of the the overall price that they that's needed for that external that positive externality. But if we're in a world now where supply is scarce, and in order to achieve our 2030 targets, just for net zero alone, we need a 6x increase on today's supply market in terms of volume and a 15x increase by 2040 on today's and a 37x increase by 2050 on today's supply market. Where that are these numbers that, coming from? Is that so this would be combining some of the research done by Trove and, and UCL 
and and a report by World Economic Forum and McKinsey from May mm. called uh, Nature and Net Zero. If you if we were to project all that forward, those growth needs, the growth needs are going to be on the supply side, and that's a beautiful problem to have. That's an inc- that's, yeah. that opens up. This is potentially the golden era yeah. of of investments into nature, right? When, yeah. when there's more demand than there's some, that there is supply and the, the nature of supply is nature, it means that investment banks and private equity and funds and bonds can all start to look to solutions on the ground and investments into conservation in ways that just two years ago, three years ago, five years ago, they would have looked at it and said, ah, but is, where's the demand? Who's going to buy? Who's going to buy? Right. Who's going to buy? Oh, yeah. This is, I think now for, for there, the listeners, just right? this has been from day one, it, we focus so much on supply, creating supply. Demand was always hard to hard to find, partly because the reporters weren't covering climate change. And, and now th- to go from this persistent oversupply to now where we have demand driving the creation of new supply, that's huge. We've been waiting... For this forever, yeah, yeah. I hope we're exactly. ready for and, it. <laughs> and we've we have arrived. We really have yeah. arrived. And what's different now is that it's not just bespoke funds. The Althelia Climate Fund broke ground. It was transformative in what they did, and what they continue to now do through Mirova. But we need a hundred of those, right? Yeah, everywhere. We need a thousand of them everywhere, and. It should be as competitive to invest in nature as it is to invest in a, in a tech startup and a Silicon Valley tech startup, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's the road we're headed towards. And what you see now is that it's not just these bespoke investment teams like Nathalia was, but the largest trading houses in the world are now coming in. The sovereign wealth funds are coming in. Pension funds are coming in. This is trillions of dollars of capital under management that is potentially looking at this, that is now not potentially, but is actually looking at how to how to engage and in, in invest in these spaces, both because they have their own climate needs that they want to achieve through the investments that they're making, but because through these exchanges and through their own trading houses, there's a new asset class being created that mm-hmm. the world understands how to transact. and. What's different about now and before 10 years ago is not just who's around the table, but 10 years ago when demand was really uncertain because it was a niche thing, it tended to be that prices were fixed. So an investor comes Mm -hmm. in and says, I'll buy from you for six. And they lock the project in and the communities into that pricing regime. And that was for the investor to protect themselves right? A little bit. And to give a minimum amount that the project could subsist on. That's no longer the case anymore. And it's important for people to understand that is that old way of of investors engaging with projects can't continue and it it isn't continuing. Prices now, just as you would see in any other commodity market, when an investor comes in to invest in a new project, they tend to have an arrangement where the, the the carbon emission reductions that are being created from the project will be bought by the investor, but at a discount to market mm-hmm. so that the project can benefit from and enjoy any rise from a $5 market price to a $10 to a $15 to a $20 market price without losing out. That principle is more and more 
what I see as the as the norm. Yeah. And you were the one who uh, first called yeah. my attention to that. I remember a few months ago, you pointed that out to me. Now, the Leaf Coalition has that where anybody who buys a, an offset through them, if the price increases and they want to resell it, that increase has to go back to the community. And a lot of these guys now are doing profit sharing and forwards with kick, not kickbacks, but forwards with. With upside. Yeah. Sh- sharing and upside. Yeah. And there, there's a project in Guatemala. Um, I'm going to be doing a, a piece on that has done this. You know, they have a guarantee to the landowners. Then above a certain price, certain amount flows back to the project developer to recoup losses. But then once they cross, once the project developer breaks even, it all goes back to the landowners again. So there's a guarantee to the landowners. Then there's a then there's a compensation to the developer. And then there's a risk sharing back. And, and that makes so much sense because the money flowing into the community is part of the product. Well, and that's a whole other podcast. It's really... Um, how do you price the types of credits that Aaron Bloomgarden and, and, and the Leaf Coalition are talking about at jurisdictional levels? And I think that they've done a tremendous job of thinking that through with the countries that are wanting to participate in it and versus the pricing and investments into project level interventions. And I think it's important for the for listeners to understand that dichotomy i think in, in one of your previous mm-hmm. episodes you did a great job of breaking that down of national and jurisdictional programs and projects and the differences between them and the nesting aspect of it and maybe there's a convergence there maybe there isn't maybe value is differentiated or value is distributed by how many project level credits need to be sold domestically versus can be sold internationally or otherwise but that's a whole that's a whole other yeah. And that was one of the things I know we're we're getting close to the end here. I just wanted to make sure you because you had said something and this is a nice forward looking way to to wrap it up. You talked about the way demand can now evolve in ways we never expected it to before. You touched on it for a bit there. You talked about the different niches out there. But do you think you said what you wanted to say or is there something else? I I think I said it, but I'll add maybe a little bit of color is, is that. If you had asked me five or seven years ago, what will demand look like five or seven years from now? It, I probably would have said something like, yeah, a lot of companies will be buying directly from projects, da, 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 da. But I think if history teaches us anything, it's that the story of future demand is unwritten. And mm-hmm. it's more something that reveals itself to the market rather than something that we can create an architecture for. And I'm talking about voluntary market demand here rather than transactions between countries at the UNFCCC level, which which you can create yeah, an architecture yeah. for. I think if there's a coalescence around common principles of what is an emission reduction commodity and how it can be used, from there, I think you potentially have a very natural evolution of different sub-market of market and sub-sector applications of it and Mm -hmm. whether that is through the shipping sector doing their thing and the energy sector doing their thing i think the i think sbti's and the science-based targets community will be a big part of that story but i think Mm -hmm. there will be all i think there will be a number of different other types of sub-market fragments that begin Mm -hmm. to build on those core carbon principles and apply them in ways that, that are unique to them. And so I think the, the the true extent of the market that's out there is still unrevealed. 
And mm -hmm. because it will go beyond net zero, it will go beyond SPTIs, and it'll go, go it'll necessarily go beyond carbon. And that to me is the most exciting thing because we don't <laughs> know what's coming next. Gabriel Eikhoff of Listari Capital, wrapping up this edition of Bionic Planet. Remember, if you think I'm doing a good job of translating these technical issues into plain English and putting them into context for you, and you want more and better episodes, then help me give them to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. That's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bionic Planet. There you can support the show for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. This way, if I don't manage to generate an episode in a month, you don't get charged. And if I manage to crank out a ton of episodes, you don't get whacked either. The web address again is not the Bionic Planet website, but the Patreon website, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Bionic Planet. I'm devoted to Bionic Planet, and I even quit my full-time job to ramp up both the output and the production value, but I need your help to do it. If you're a business that wants to sponsor the show, or a philanthropist who wants to make a larger donation, I'm now fiscally sponsored through Manga Bay as a nonprofit, which means you can make a tax-deductible donation, which can help me generate a lot of episodes and even contract a sound designer and other contributors, as well as putting in more of my own time. For that, you can email me at steve at bionic-planet.com. That's steve at bionic-planet.com. You can also help by helping others find the show by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening.